And would you, and your wherever you want, would you play the tune to that song uh, and let us just reflect a minute? I'm going to just invite you to bow your heads and close your eyes just for a few moments as we center in and ask God to allow us to hear him. We thank you so much, Lord Jesus, for being here with us. And now as we open the gospel, speak to our hearts that we might hear your word. No matter what our circumstances or situation might be. Amen. Most of us can probably think of someone whose life is defined by a single experience. It could have been a negative experience. It could have been something positive. But we can think of someone whose life is identified by something unique that happened to them. This becomes, to me, even more a reality when I see a reunion of a television show like the Brady Bunch or Little House on the Prairie or The Love Boat, for those of you who grew up watching that like I did. The actors will talk about how they struggled with finding other acting roles as they grew on in their career, particularly if they were a child actor. They will talk about the struggles that they face even out in the community when people recognize them not as who they are, but as the character they play. How many people think Peter Brady is Peter Brady today from the Brady Bunch? Decades later as adults, they are unable to escape the role that they played as a child, defined by that single experience or role that they played on that show or movie. Today I have a few examples with the help of Anna Robinson at the projection table from Hollywood. So let's take a look, and you can see then and now Fran, Fran Drescher, who played the nanny, as Fran with the voice and the laugh, and I'll spare you the voice and the laugh today. Or what about Macaulay Culkin, who played Kevin McAllister in the Home Alone movies? He will never escape that role. And one of my favorite shows growing up was Happy Days. And Henry Winkler is still to this day seen as Arthur Fonzarelli. 
What about Kirk Cameron, who played Mike Seaver in Growing Pains? Recognizable even to this day. Or if you're like me, you watched Full House a lot. And Mary-Kate and Ashley Olsen, the twins, to this day, are remembered because of the role they played. Or what about Mario Lopez, who played A.C. in Saved by the Bell? Or one of my favorites, Jaleel White, who played Steve Erfel in Family Matters. I don't know that he will ever outgrow that role. The central character in today's gospel reading would identify with any one of these characters. He gave up everything and faithfully followed Jesus for three years, just like the rest of the disciples. Tradition has him carrying the gospel to India, where there's still an order of Christians named for him. This same tradition has him being martyred for his faith. Yet none of this seems to matter to many of us today. And this disciple, well, his name is Thomas. But everybody knows him as Doubting Thomas. You know it well. Even people who have little or no religious background have heard the term Doubting Thomas. And I will argue today that Thomas has gotten a bad rap. His reputation as a skeptic is undeserved and perhaps the result of too casual of a reading of the text by many Christians over the years. After all, today's gospel lesson is not the only place in Scripture where Thomas is seen in action. It's important for us to ask what, other script, what do other scriptural passages, passages tell us about Thomas? And ask, have our assumptions or presuppositions of Thomas colored the way we read the various accounts of Thomas? And we also would ask, what can Thomas teach us about what it means to believe? If we go back to John chapter 11, we're reminded of the story of Lazarus. Lazarus was the brother of Mary and Martha. They lived in Bethany, and they were dear friends of Jesus. And in John 11 begins to flesh out the personality of Thomas in an incident surrounding the death of Lazarus. Jesus tells the disciples that the time has come for them to go to Bethany that they might comfort the grieving family. Jesus had gotten word that he was gravely ill and waited, as you know, and then showed up on the fourth day and Lazarus had died. The disciples can hardly believe what they're hearing from Jesus. Are you kidding me? Given the hostility that's come uh, to you through Jerusalem and the proximity of Jerusalem to Bethany, to go to Bethany at a time like this was nothing short of Jesus writing his own obituary. Thomas then speaks up, addressing himself and his fellow disciples, saying, let us also go with him that we might die with him. To make such a statement, to take such a stand, requires no insignificant amount of courage and devotion. Here is the one who is willing to lay down his life in a spirit of solidarity with his Lord, is the courage of Thomas and his willingness to die diminished because of his later caution surrounding what he heard as reports 
of Jesus' resurrection? If not, then why don't we remember him as courageous Thomas rather than doubting Thomas? Why should one event in the life of this man be defined any more than the other? So as followers of Jesus Christ, as we read and seek to understand this story, we must decide if we want to be God's scorekeepers for wrongs done or grace givers of God's forgiveness. And I hope that I'm the latter and not the former. The first glimpse of Thomas here in chapter 11 should remind us that there is more to a person than a convenient soundbite of an experience or something that they did in the past. If we fast forward to chapter 14 in John's Gospel, the next time we hear about Thomas is there. Jesus is speaking a somewhat cryptic message about his departure to heaven where he would do some preparation for them and us. You remember, Jesus said, I am going there to prepare a place for you, and if I go there and prepare a place for you, I will come back and I will take you to be where I am. We actually heard that text in last Sunday's message. But Thomas is hearing Jesus. He's there with the other disciples. They're in the upper room. And he doesn't have a clue what Jesus is talking about. Maybe we would ask the same question. Thomas was the only one bold enough to say, Jesus, I hear what you're saying, but what is all this about going to a place and preparing it, and you're going to come back, and you're going to take me and all the rest of us to be where you are, and then we will know the, place, the way to the place where you are going? I'm sorry, maybe I missed something, but I just don't get it. Lord, in verse 5 of chapter 14, we do not know where you are going, so how can we know the way? And this in turn leads Jesus to speak in unambiguous terms that we can understand, providing one of the most memorable passages in all of Scripture that you have heard read at funerals and at the burial site and also during times where we celebrate Easter, where Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. As Thomas had said, how can we know the way? And Jesus looked at him and said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. It took remarkable, self-assured honesty for Thomas to acknowledge that for him, Jesus wasn't making any sense and that he didn't understand. So why don't we in the church call Thomas Honest Thomas instead of Doubting Thomas? Because of his willingness to admit ignorance, we are all the wiser. Because of his honest confession, we are the recipient of the hope-filled words that have sustained us across the generations in our own moments of loss and separation. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go there, I will come back and take you to be where I am. And Thomas asked that question. And then Jesus responded with those wonderful, caring, hopeful words that have sustained us across the generations in our moments of loss and grief. Thank you, Thomas, for being bold enough to ask your question. 
I believe that the church should be a place where we can freely ask questions. And too often in church, we either told or there's an assumption made that it's not appropriate to express doubt. And I'm glad that HRBC is a place where we do encourage people to ask any question that they want. This is a safe place. And I'm grateful for that. The third scene in which Thomas appears and plays a significant role is in John chapter 20, today's text. It's a resurrection appearance text. Jesus appears among the disciples who are fully aware of how incomprehensible his appearance is to their experiences. And he takes the initiative and he shows them the marks in his hands and the undeniable mark on his side, the marks of the crucifixion. We would be remiss if we did not acknowledge that the other disciples doubted as Thomas doubted. If you go back and look at Matthew 28, where the Great Commission occurs, that is a resurrection appearance, and the disciples then still expressed their doubts. And we would probably have done the same thing if we were in their place. But Jesus appeared that resurrection evening in the upper room. He came through the door. He didn't have to open the door. He passed right through and appeared to them. But Thomas wasn't there. And the scripture is very clear. It tells us Thomas was not there. I often wonder, where was he? You know, had he gone fishing? Did he not get the text? Right? Was he onto his uh, just kind of doing life? He says, well, I'm just going to get back to what I used to do. It's been nice, but... Sometime during the week, he hears the message that Jesus had appeared. The disciples, the other disciples, told him what had happened. And then he, he said, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I won't believe. Like Miss Amanda said in her message, she, she's a visual person, and many of us are, and Thomas was a visual person. He, he needed to see it and touch it and experience it. Just hearing it wasn't enough for him. And, and that's okay if you're wired up that way. A week later, and his, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas this time was with them. He got the memo. The doors were locked. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you, which is a common Hebrew greeting. greeting shalom. And, and then he said to Thomas, he looks directly at Thomas because Jesus knew his heart. Jesus knew what had happened the week before and said, put your finger here, see my hands, and then reach out your hand and put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe or stop unfaithing and faith. The Greek word is pistis, pistuo, and it's the, the word ah, little letter a in front of a, a verb means that it's negated. So uh, non-faith, faith, or unbelief and belief. And so Je Jesus said, stop unfaithing and faith, or stop unbelieving and believe. And then Thomas, the Bible tells, does not tell us that Thomas actually 
touched the scars in his hands or placed his hand in Jesus' side, the scripture simply says Thomas acknowledged who he was. He said, my Lord and my God. I don't think Thomas needed to touch Jesus. I think that he simply saw and believed and professed or made his confession. And then Jesus said this to him and all the disciples. He said, because you have seen me, you've believed. But blessed are those who have not seen and who have yet believed. None of us in this room has seen Jesus Christ as the disciples did way back then. And Jesus, I believe, is blessing us who's saying, blessed are those who have seen me. You've believed, but blessed are those Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. That's us. We haven't seen Jesus like they did, but we have faith in God. We believe. We seek to follow Him. We're all at different places, but we have the opportunity to receive that blessing as we believe. This leads us to a few more questions. Why has the Christian community developed such a negative attitude toward doubt? We have, many of us, been reared in religious environment in which doubt is posed as the antithesis of faith. And as this story of Thomas is often used to reinforce that lesson. But isn't the doubt versus faith dichotomy a false issue? Is not the real enemy of faith unbelief than doubt? Or when somebody stops believing or does not express the desire to believe in God. That's called atheism. Again, that little word a, a theos, atheism. That's where I drift to such a point in my life where I have abandoned my belief in God. That's different than expressing doubts as a believer. I, I believe that's the real issue that we as Christians need to embrace the very fact that doubt is okay to express so long as we don't drift down toward the slippery slope of atheism. I believe that doubt has a constructive and positive role to play in the exercise of our faith. So what am I to do about it? I don't want to be labeled as a doubting Thomas, but I am frequently beset with unresolved questions of faith. You, ex you experience it we all experience it. Often I'm in the hospital. If you work in a hospital, you know that there are joys and there are very difficult situations. I've been in the hospital when the melody comes over the loudspeaker that a new little one has been born. And I've been in a hospital room when the rapid response team is called. We have all experienced Faith and doubt. We have questions when there's a family who's on a vacation at the beach and a freak accident causes two young children to become orphaned and to be raised by their grandparents. Or when we see the obituary of a bright young lady who was raised in a Christian home and then robbed of life because opioids. Or just recently in San Diego when a synagogue was attacked and last Easter Sunday as we were worshiping and as 
Christians were worshiping around this country in Sri Lanka. Hundreds of people lost their lives because of violent attacks on Christians that worship. This has happened in Nigeria. Muslims who are at mosque in Christchurch, New Zealand, and also fellow Jewish brethren and sisters in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, experiencing the same kind of violence as they freely worship, and we grapple with these issues and cannot find answers. Or when a couple is able to take their baby home and another has to take the nursery down. We experience doubts every day. And by the grace of God, we are able to offer our doubts, even though we may not ever have the answer that we want. That's the path I choose. I choose to believe. I don't believe that the opposite is any good at all. There is a tension that exists in our faith, and I believe it's very real. A tension that always exists between faith and doubt. Tension, now you're thinking of a tension headache. You're thinking an Excedrin headache, all right? Stress. Think of tension in the way engineers think about it. It's a force that's transmitted when it's pulled or but it's pulled tight by uh, one end or the other. Imagine a, a rope that is at rest and there's slack in it. When two people pull that rope, there's a tension in it. And that rope can be used to pull a sled. And often I have pulled Isabella in the snow and had lots of fun. And that's because uh, the appropriate amount of tension is placed on the rope. When we play tug-of-war at field day in school, there is tension on either side. A rope with slack in it cannot be used for that purpose. A tennis racket requires the strings to have a certain amount of tension. A guitar has to have its strings with a certain amount of tension so that they can be played. A suspension bridge has tension so that it holds up and enables it to flex with changing conditions and situations with the weather. Reinforced concrete has a rebar, steel bar in it that enables the concrete to withstand greater stress when it expands. You can put lots of stuff on cement, but it doesn't do as well when it's pulled one way or the other. This is tension, and it exists, and I believe it exists in our faith, and I believe we have to pay attention to this tension. Pastor and writer John Ortberg says this, Faith and doubt are part of my life. We often think of them as opposites. Many books argue for one or the other, but while in some respects they are enemies, in other ways they are surprisingly alike. Both are concerned with ultimate issues. Both pop up unasked for at unexpected moments, and both are necessary. He continues, I must have truth, therefore I experience doubt. I must have hope, Therefore, I believe. If I did not believe, I would cave into despair, and I dread despair. And in addition to believing and hoping, he says, there is choosing. I must decide which road I will follow. 
we as a church, and I'm talking about the bigger church, not necessarily just our congregation, but we as the church often dismiss doubts and questions as the product of an immature faith. Sometimes we simply repeat the same religious stuff over and over again and find satisfaction and disregard the struggles. Sometimes in our conviction that we possess some of the answers, we act as if we have all of the answers, and that's dangerous. Sometimes we just need to be honest with each other and say, I don't know. I don't know. And I may never. I believe those answers would be found or received very well in the church instead of trying to give some glib answer and fix it that we might say, I don't know. But there's one I do know, and his name is Jesus, and he's the way and the truth and the life. And I believe that with all my heart. We can learn from Thomas even though we don't know where our journey might lead, we can learn from him. We can learn that Jesus does not ignore our doubts. He does not meet them with chastisement, but with a manifestation of grace. Our congregations are filled every Sunday with people who hold unresolved issues of faith and belief, but there is no, often no safety zone within our churches where doubts and questions can be raised and legitimized without the questioner being made feel like a second-class class Christian. Instead, we hold before them the negative image of doubting Thomas. But what if we rehabilitated the reputation of Thomas as one who had the courage to admit his lack of understanding? And what if we celebrated the willingness of Thomas to express his honest doubts? Courageous Thomas! Honest Thomas, and yes, the doubting Thomas too. It could change the complexion of our congregations. It could help persons to see that faith is a belief held in the presence of doubts rather than a belief that removes all doubt. It might help people discover that they can be empowered to openly discuss their doubts and their struggles of faith. And it might help us to be seen by unbelievers, not as folks who have all the answers all the time, but as people who are like themselves, who hold a measure of faith despite our uncertainties. In other words, when we embrace the tension of faith and doubt, we give the church a more human face. We need to embrace the truth learned by the example of Thomas That doubts may not always lead to answers, but they will always lead to growth. It's vitally important for us to provide a safe place for people of all ages, our students, our children, and our adults in their Bible studies and Sunday school classes, that we provide a safe place for them to ask questions and to express doubts without condemnation and without judgment, without being made to feel like a second-class Christian. So we come to this time where we have to ask, where are we? Where are we? What questions do we have? What are we struggling with? 
can we be honest? It might not be in a large group of people, but could there be one or two people that you could go to and ask them to sit down and listen to some of the questions and struggles that you have? Or that our Bible study classes would be places where you would feel comfortable and not judged? And how could we who are mature believers, many of you have been in the church for a long time and you're mature in your faith, how can we help others to experience the opportunity for growth in the time of their questions and in their doubts? Perhaps there's a call there that we might need to answer. Frederick Beekner said this, if you don't have any doubts, you're either kidding yourself or asleep. Doubts are the ants in the pants of faith. They keep it awake and moving. Let us pray.